If you're visiting with us today, um, you're going to be part of a little bit more of a, I don't know, a family message or a pastoral message. We've been working our way through the book of um, Genesis, the last uh, number of chapters in particular, 37 to uh, 50. And uh, while we have titled this series, Joseph, Behind a Frowning Providence, there is a smiling face. It's actually more accurately the story about the generations of Jacob. And so today we are um, uh, dealing with a specific instance in the life of Jacob, which uh, I think opens up for us an opportunity to talk about some things that I've wanted to talk about for a long time. I, I just, you know, they're not the kind of things you just choose and preach on. And so uh, today uh, the applications will be fairly specific and, and um, tied to the text. So I hope as you are with us here today, you'll be able to worship with us. Um, the text is uh, Genesis chapter 47, and uh, Pastor Andrew ended at verse 26. And so we're just doing four or five verses, uh, Genesis 47, 20 to 31 uh, this morning. And here we have uh, Moses recording um, some significant information about uh, the life of Jacob. Then Israel, uh, these are the families of Jacob now, then Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen. And they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, that is referring now specifically to Jacob, not to the people of Israel, he called his son Joseph and he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Father, thank you for your word today and for the way it has been guiding us and instructing us over these last number of weeks. And I pray that that would be the case also today. Help us to wrap our heads not only around the text, but the truth of the text. And then to listen and learn about ways that we might apply it in our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the things that is inevitable in life is death. And I think one of the things that Christians should think about from time to time is their own death. And that we should prepare for it and that we should plan for it. That's been the question that has been swirling around in my head these last number of weeks as I've been thinking about this particular message. Is there a way that Christians can prepare to die? Is there a way that we can prepare for our death? Is there a Christian way to die? Does discipleship involve dying and death? In fact, I believe that the Bible is pretty clear that not only is the gospel relevant for how we ought to live, and we ought to live in a way that glorifies God, but the Bible is also relevant when it comes to our death, and we ought to die and prepare for our death in a way that glorifies God. For years and years, for hundreds of years, Christians have talked about a good death and about Christian dying. And so today we're just going to work around some of the edges of that. We have so little time to do that and so much that I would like to say. But we are able to say it just because of the text as it opens that up for us today. 
I just want to make a couple comments about the text, its context, and a few specific context comments about Jacob as his time drew near to die, and then some applications for your and my life. It's not really a strange thing as we come to this particular text. If, if you were to read ahead, you would find that starting at verse 27 or 28 of chapter 47 and going all the way to chapter 49, verse 33, we are talking about Jacob preparing to die. This is two and a half chapters of him um, getting ready for that eventual day. It's not unlike at all Jesus as he walked with his disciples many times. He spoke to them about his coming death. And then if you go to John, actually, John chapter 13, all the way to John chapter 19, however many chapters at it, it's all about Jesus as he's preparing his disciples, disciples for his death. He's preparing himself and he's preparing his disciples. And so there is preparation that is involved as that day approaches. As we hit verse 28, we find that uh, Israel now has settled in the land of Goshen. And there's a fascinating phrase that is used there. It says, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. That is in contrast to what Pastor Andrew mentioned to us last week about how the Egyptians were becoming enslaved. Remember how as the famine grew worse and worse, they gave up their lives. They gave up their livestock. They gave up their money. They, they, they gave everything to to serve or, or so they could buy grain. On the other hand, as the uh, Israelites move into Goshen, they gain an inheritance, they gain land, they gain professions. It's an amazing reversal and a demonstration of God's care for his people. The second thing you might notice in verse um, 28 is it says there, um, 17 years Jacob lived in Goshen. Uh, he came when he was 130 years old and he would die when he's 147 years old. I don't know if this really means anything. It's just fascinating to me that for 17 years, Jacob cared for Joseph as a young boy. Remember, Joseph was 17 years old when he was sold into Egypt. And now for the last 17 years of Jacob's life, Joseph will care for him. That's a wonderful reality that even as Christians, we need to continue to wrestle with and grapple with that our parents have poured into our lives as children and have poured into our upbringing and have sacrificed greatly to see us fly from the house, so to speak. And as their time of aging comes, we should likewise be concerned about pouring into their life and sacrificing and caring for our parents as they live out their last few days. And then from verse 30 to 31, we find Jacob making preparations for his funeral. A little bit of the greater context is just a preface to his life, which is important. We find that in uh, verse, uh, chapter 47, Pharaoh is meeting with Jacob for the first time. And Pharaoh's question to Jacob is a fascinating one in verse 8. He says, how many are the days of the years of your life? The Egyptians were consumed with life and longevity and eternal life. And so it's not an unusual question for a Pharaoh to ask. How many are the days of the years of your life. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. This is all in the context now of when the time drew near that Israel must die. There are times when we get to see that on the horizon and we see it coming. There are other times when we don't see it coming at all and the next thing we know we are in eternity. 
Even in the paper this week, you might have read of that young uh, instructor in town that just had contact with a bat and died not long after from rabies. We don't know when our death day will come. We just know that it will come. As the Bible says, there is a time to die. None of us will escape that particular time. For Jacob, he had time to prepare for it and plan for it. And it's on the doorstep, so to speak. And it uh, struck me as Jacob is thinking about this and he's in that sort of world that I think that he began to disconnect from life a lot earlier than this particular text in verse 47. I think that when, uh, as, as he rehearses his life, we realize that he had lived a very difficult kind of life. And sometimes there is so much difficulty in our life that at some point we shift from living and we just say, I just want to go home. I just want to go home. It's been a long life, and it's been a hard life, and I just want to go home. And I think that that shift maybe had taken place in Jacob's life, particularly when his wife, Rachel, the wife that he loved so much, had passed away. And it seemed like when he buried her, he buried part of himself. And he never really got his feet back on the ground, and that had happened 50 years earlier. And I think when Rachel died, a great part of Jacob died also. But notice his response to Pharaoh's question. After living 130 years, he says, Few and evil have been the days of my life. Fascinating. You know, we skip over these things so quickly. First of all, he, 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 he mentions very clearly, Few have been the days of my life. That's his way of saying, I believe, that his hope in life is not built on the number of days he lives. A successful, good, hopeful life is not necessarily based in the amount of days that one lives. And in fact, we see this here because he views his life as a sojourner. This world was not his home. Canaan was not his home. Egypt was not his home. He said, I am a sojourner. Well, what is a sojourner? A sojourner is a pilgrim. What is a pilgrim? A pilgrim is a, a foreigner. They're, they're, they're individuals or people who don't set down roots in any particular place. A foreigner lives in a place, but he doesn't belong there. There's a certain restlessness about his being there. There's a certain restlessness about the place that he happens to be at that certain time. The psalmist said, I am a sojourner with you, God, a guest like all of my fathers. You see, Jacob is saying something significant here. He's saying that for all the life that I've lived, my hope is not rooted in the days of my years. It's not like I need another 50 years like my great-grandfather had. It's not that I need another 45 years like my father had. He says, I am a sojourner here, regardless of how many have been the days of the years of my life. In other words, loved ones, our hope is not rooted in the duration of our lives. The second comment that he makes, which is fascinating to me, he says, few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. His hope is not rooted in the circumstances of his life. He describes them as being evil. And this is a word that we sometimes use to describe evil, wickedness. But it's a word that has a broader range of meaning in it, that it can mean unhappy or hard or difficult or unpleasant. And so he's saying, I've had a really hard life. And if I had time and I, I had I had. Two sermons ready that I was thinking, how do I give them both on one Sunday? 
And so you're getting the condensed version, the Cole's notes of both sermons. But in that, you can map out the hardship of Jacob's life. From a young man as he went to serve Laban, and then all through the course, the ups and downs, the difficulties that his children have brought into his life, the anguish that he felt when, 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 when his sons betrayed him, when Joseph was sold. He had had a difficult, hard, hard life. But his hope in life was not rooted in the circumstances of his life. And I think as followers of Christ and as those who walk with God, sometimes these words can accurately describe, describe the life of a true believer. And I think we ought not to sort of quickly come alongside somebody, oh, it's not really that bad, or you haven't really had that type of life, to realize that sometimes the circumstances of our life have been hard and evil. And it's not meaning that we aren't a good Christian or a good follower of Jesus. We can rightly say, I don't have a lot of joy. There haven't been a lot of things in my life that, is, that has made me content like other people. And some of you have known this in your life. Your lives have been characterized by pain and difficulty and hardship. But your hope is not rooted in the circumstances of your life. So that your hope is not rooted in the length of your days. Your hope is not rooted in the circumstances of your life. And so we, we come into this prospect now of this looming death for Jacob. It says after 17 years of arriving in Egypt, there's something ominous about these words when the time drew near that Jacob must die. I found one man particularly helpful, Alistair Begg, summarizes just quick clues on what the text provides that we kind of see this. Well, one of the ways that we know for Jacob it's looming is he's 147 years old. He's lived a long life. There's not a one of us here that is going to live to be 147 on this physical earth. And so he had lived a long, long life. Not as long as his father who lived 180 years or his grandfather who had lived 175 years. But clearly he realized that his body and age was coming to a limit. In fact, if you read, I believe it's Psalm 90. I'm not convinced that's it, but somewhere in there it says that three score and ten years is the sort of the natural expectation of human life. Seventy years. And my, uh, my father-in-law uh, used to say that every day he lived, or every year he lived after 70, he lived on borrowed time. But there is a reality that age will finally define for us that we're getting close to that time when we are going to die. But there are indications also in uh, Jacob's life that, uh, that this was coming on. There were phys his physical capabilities were diminishing. He says at the end of this text, he says that he bowed his head on his bed or he bowed his head on his staff. It seems to indicate that he didn't even have strength to get out of bed. That he was just leaning on his staff as Joseph had come in. And that, just that act of talking to Joseph briefly had exhausted him. It seems that he had mustered all his strength to talk to him. And in fact, in verse, chapter 48, verse 2, he calls Joseph into him again. And it says, then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. He, he realized that the day for him to die was coming and his strength was waning. There was also indications, though, that physically weakness was setting in. It says that um, his eyes were dim with age. 
That just happens as we get older, our bodies wear out. If you want a really happy portion of Scripture to read when you go home today, read Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 to 7. And there it says, Rejoice in your Creator in the days of your youth before. And then it describes the impact of aging on a life and a body. And so it's just something that happens. And his eyes were beginning to fade on him. It also indicates that maybe his memory was going a little bit. Because when Joseph came to him and he brought his two sons with him, uh, Jacob's response to them, well, who are these? And I wonder if many of you have experienced that with, with fathers or mothers or uh, husbands or wives. One day you go in to see them and they go, hey, and they know who you are and they welcome you. And the next day you go in and who are you? And you go, well, Dad, I was just here yesterday. Don't you remember me? And sometimes we fade and in and we fade out and it's just another indication that maybe uh, the days of our death are coming. And then there's a final clue, I think, which is an obvious one. But it says, after this, Joseph was told, behold, your father is ill. Those aren't the words of, you know, Joseph, your dad's got a bad head cold today. Or, you know, he's picked up a, a bad um, case of the flu from the grandchildren. This is Joseph. You better get here quickly. I don't know how much time Dad has got left. You need to get home. And so there's all these indications that um, Joseph uh, or Jacob recognized that his life was coming to end and he was putting his house in order. He was getting ready for that. He saw that day and so he starts to talk to his grandchildren. He starts to talk to his sons. He tells Joseph about his funeral plans and what he wants done with his body. I think this is the, sort of the third thing that we find from this text is that Jacob's hope was in the home that he had been promised, not in the land that he was living. He's about to die and he calls Joseph in. He says, swear to me, Joseph, don't bury me in Egypt. Take me back to Canaan. Bury me in the cave with my dad and my grandpa. Take me to Hebron. I want to die. I want to be buried in Canaan. And some might say, what's the big deal? Who cares where your body lays? After all, God is going to raise us from the dead and we're all going to be there. But I think that this is just a, another way of demonstrating that Jacob was holding on to a promise. As he knew his death was approaching, he was holding on to a promise that God would give to him and his seed the land of Canaan. It's as if he's saying, you see, my whole life, Joseph, has been wrapped up in this promise that God has promised me a land, and I want to be buried in that land. Put me there. Don't leave me in Egypt. Is this where your hope is? Is your hope in the land to come? Is your hope in heaven to come? Or is your hope here on earth? See, Jacob, as he was dying, made it clear to his sons that this was not the end, that he had a hope of a better life. And in fact, I don't think that he was maybe as old in the Old Testament, was maybe as backward thinking as we're. I think he already had in his heart and mind the hope of the resurrection. He had enough that had been taught to him and that had brought to him that he already believed that one day, somehow, he would be raised from the dead. And not just in some spiritual sort of immaterial way, but in the New Testament way where we will be raised up. These bodies of ours will be transformed. 
They will be made new in every way. There will be no more crying. There will be no more weakness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more sadness, no more sorrow. We will live forever and ever in these bodies. What an incredible hope that we have. And it's that hope that sustains us even as we approach those final days of our life. From there, I just want to quickly launch into a couple applications. And before we get to that applications, I think theology informs every decision that we make. And theology ought to inform our decisions about how we prepare to die and how we plan to die. There's four things, and I only have time today to just drop them in your head. Maybe uh, in, a, in a month or two, we'll have a, a seminar for a couple hours, and we'll do a theological side and a practical side and a medical side so that we can understand this a little bit more fully. But four things that are absolutely critical as we think about that day. And they, uh, they, they help us understand that God is real. And then that changes everything. If there's no God, it doesn't matter about our dying. But if God is real, then it matters. And so the four things are very quickly the sanctity of life. And as we think about preparing for dying and our own death, to understand that our death is not like the death of an animal. We have been created in the likeness and the image of God. And by that very act of creation, God has put into humankind a uniqueness that is not found in any other life. And you find that being eroded in our culture that we live. A boy is a rat, is a pig is a boy. That's what they're saying out there now. They've taken away the fact that God has made us unique at all. And therefore, it doesn't matter what you do to the human body. Understand that as you think about these realities, the sanctity of life is a critical grid for which to make some of these decisions. The second thing is the authority of God over life and over death. Our lives are not our own. They're not our own to do with what we want whenever we want. It's God who gives life, and it's God who takes away life. He holds our very life breath in his hands. He has numbered our days. He knows how many we will live from beginning to end. And it is not us to say to God, Who are you to say that I should live another 20 days? We have to understand that in Scripture, if God is real, not only has he made life unique and precious, human life unique and precious, but he also has authority over life and over death. Jesus recognized that. He wanted to avoid that. He wanted to escape the pain of physical death and the reality of spiritual death. And as he prayed and as he anguished in the garden, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And on the cross, he gave up his spirit. The third thing is mercy and compassion, suffering, meaning in life. There is meaning in suffering. There is meaning in pain. And God is the ability to understand that and knows that and uses that and works through that in so many ways, not only in our lives, but in the lives around us. That as we walk through suffering, as we walk through pain, we are taught things. We learn things. It says of Christ, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. There's a beauty in our, the family of God that we bear with one another as they're suffering. We, as, as we heard from Brianna, they go and visit the girls that are suffering in prison. There is meaning in suffering and pain. And there is importance to compassion and mercy. One individual wrote, living fully means accepting suffering. Being human happens within suffering. 
And a biblical theology of suffering is part of the gospel of living and dying. This will make sense as we talk about some decisions that we make as death and dying approaches us. So we have the sanctity of life. We have the authority of God. We have the, the, the meaningfulness of suffering and compassion and of mercy. And the fourth grid that we, we work through as we prepare for our own death is the grid of hope in God. We understand that when we die, that's not the end. We understand that, we know that, and so there's a sense in which Christians don't need to cling tenaciously to life in this earth because we know that we have eternal life the moment we cross that veil. And it helps us as we wrestle this through and work this through in our life that my hope is not rooted in this world. My hope is not rooted in my physical life. I have a hope of a resurrection life. I have a hope of eternal life, and that when I pass, and we all will pass, I will be in the presence of God forever and ever. So those are the four things that I have just dropped on you, and I'm so sorry that I've dropped them quickly, but at least you have them in your head, and, and you say, okay, this is a grid. This is, this is theology, and as we come to some of these practical issues now, I can work them through this biblical grid. There could be other things, but those are four that I can think of. So four areas of application. And these, again, I just touch on. The first is the last weeks or months of our life. When you're faced with difficult issues surrounding, do I preserve life or am I prolonging death? These are huge issues that many of us will face. It takes real bravery and fortitude to tell somebody you love, when I die, this is what I want. It's helpful to begin already praying to God and saying, God, these are the issues that are in front of me. These are the things that I hear. These are the things that I see on TV. And understand that what you saw, see on TV is not true. It, it, pre, it, pre, it paints a picture of the realities of, of the last few weeks and months that just aren't true. And so you need to talk with God. You need to talk with your family. You need to talk with your physician and say, help me understand this medical um, procedure. Help me understand this. And understand, medical advancements are amazing and they are wonderful, but they also have limitations and they bring into our life issues that we didn't have to think about 50, 60 years ago. And so it's helpful to understand various medical technologies that are available, what they can do, what they can't do, how they impact your body. To understand when they are used to preserve a life and when they are used to prolong death, it's important that you think about those things, loved one. We have so many forms in our medical system now, and we've got people in our church that can help you think about these and work them out. There's the most form, medical orders for the scope of treatment. There's the, the, the advanced care initiative that, that, that you can think of and that describes when you get to certain points, this is how they will care for me and this is how I will go through those last weeks or months of my life. There's a DNR that you can talk about and think about. It's important that you understand what that is. But talk about these issues. Talk about them with your husband and wife. If you're older, talk about them with your kids so there's no surprises. But you need to work through those issues. The, the, the second one, and, and this is a troubling one, and it's one that I haven't wanted to say anything about, but it's physician-assisted suicide or physician-assisted death. That is a reality that has now come to Canada. And the language matters. When you use physician-assisted death 
over physician-assisted suicide, it changes people's perceptions by 10 to 15% on what they actually think happens. And the devil is really smart in using language to change our perspectives of something when the morality of it doesn't change. But when Bill C-14 was passed into law in Canada in June 17, 2016, physician-assisted suicide became legal in Canada making Canada, at that time, one of only five countries in the world that had a law legalizing physician-assisted suicide. On Vancouver Island, the practice falls under the anacronym MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying or Death. Let's talk about the island for a minute. I don't know if you're aware of these things, but we need to be, and, and I, it's amazing how many people I am talking to now that this is touching their worlds. Since becoming legal in 2016, June 7th, there have been 1,015 people on Vancouver Island who have chosen physician-assisted suicide. At this point, our per capita rate surpasses almost any area in the world, and the rate continues to escalate. As people think about this, cancer is the main reason people choose for physician-assisted suicide. But what's important to note is that 70% of the people actually choose it for existential reasons. Reasons that, that, that have nothing to do with pain, but rather reasons that have to do with the loss of independence, or the loss of autonomy, or the inability to engage in things that they wanted to do, or, or that things that they had up to that point made their life enjoyable. Loss of motivation. It is the reality that almost, in, in most cases, 100% of pain and suffering can be treated medically. Why is the island so high? There's a lot of reasons. I, I think one of the reasons is what I call the Cascadia effect. There's a few books that I've read in the last year on Cascadia. Cascadia is British Columbia, Oregon, and Washington. And in fact, there's talk now and again of those three um, uh, two states and provinces actually becoming one because there's a thought process, there's a way of life, there's a way of looking at things that is similar in all three of those uh, places. And it, it, what it is, it's, it's an irreligious society. In fact, in all of the books I've read, they talk about when you come across the Rocky Mountains, people often leave God behind. And so we're living in a culture where there is no God where God does not factor into our decisions, where God does not factor into our life, where we have embraced scientific naturalism, where we've embraced evolutionary thinking. And so as we embrace all of that, as we, as we discard God, then our view of life changes dramatically. It's important that we understand that legality does not always equate with Christian morality. And physician-assisted suicide emphasizes this rift. Although support for physician-assisted suicide emphasizes compassion and patient autonomy, both of them honorable pursuits, they do not justify taking life. And in fact, Exodus 20.13 is clear, you shall not murder. It's very important that we differentiate between hospice and palliative care on the one hand, where comfort measures are the intent and the aim is to alleviate suffering from physician-assisted suicide or death, 
whose goal is to facilitate death. Hospice and palliative care and even palliative sedation do not hasten death. They simply comfort one as they walk down that road. One of the saddest realities that we are beginning to discover on the island and those who have contacts in this area is that there are no resources given to family members of those who choose that route. They are left grieving with no resources, no help, no understanding of what has taken place. And in fact, in some cases, the feelings and reactions can be similar to those of a loved one who has actually committed suicide. The third area of application. Just general thought to your, your, your funeral, your will. I hope you've all got wills. It's so important to have written down, doesn't matter what age you are, to have a will. Just, uh, just a, a brief legal will. They're not expensive, but just to have a brief will that describes um, what you want done with your earthly resources. If you have children, what you want done with your children. You don't want the government to make those decisions for you. But from a pastoral perspective, one of the, one of the best things you can do for me if I'm alive before, um, if I live longer than you, is you can just fill out, we have it on, online, a, a, a note about your funeral, what you would like in your memorial, what songs you like, what scriptures you like. It's, it's amazing to me how often families are unaware of the spiritual history of their loved one that has passed away. And it just helps make a funeral that's much more personal. I have a few on file. I would love to have two or 300 on file. Not because that means we're all going to die in the next week or two, but just it helps plan and prepare, and it's one less burden that a family has to bear as they are dealing with such deep grief and sorrow. Oh, here's what my wife wanted, or here's what my dad wanted, and it helps us frame and shape the service. So to think through that, you can find that form on the webpage. There's certainly a chance that I've offended some of you this morning. If I have, forget everything I've said then to this point, and remember this. The most important preparation you can make for dying is spiritual preparation. If you don't want to listen to anything else, that's okay, but please listen to this. You need to be prepared spiritually for the day when your death will come. The psalmist says, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come appear before before you, God. I, I, I love that anticipation. When shall I come and appear before you? Is that your anticipation? And what is that anticipation rooted in? I have done numerous funerals now for, 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 for those that were born prematurely, to those that lived well into their late 90s, for those that were, 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 were just terrible deaths, to those that were sort of natural deaths, if there is such a thing. And, and there is this reality that people always want to say, well, they're now in heaven looking down, or they're having a beer in heaven, and I'm thinking, really? And they might be if they know Jesus. <laughs> it's not that there's anything wrong with beer. Oh, man. All right. <laughs> we'll have a sermon next Sunday. <laughs> the point is, what is your confidence rooted in when you say, they're in heaven. Our confidence is rooted only in the fact that we are there through Jesus Christ.
And Corinthians is so clear. Be reconciled to God. How are we reconciled to God? Why do we need reconciliation? That's maybe the more. We need reconciliation because we have disobeyed God. We have dishonored God. We have so many idols in our life. And idolatry is one of the worst things that we could do before the God who made us to worship other things rather than worship him. And so we need to be reconciled to God. How does that happen? The only way that can happen is through Jesus Christ. And it says that God made Jesus, the perfect son of God, to be sin. And he took our sin, those of us who put our trust in Christ, and he puts it on his son. And then he says, and he gives us the son's perfect obedience, and he puts it on us. We are reconciled to God through putting our faith in Jesus Christ that he bore our rebellion and we receive his righteousness. That is how you can be sure that when you die, you will be in heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, it doesn't matter if you've come to church for 40 years. It doesn't matter if you've had Christian parents. It doesn't matter if you've given tens of thousands of dollars. It doesn't matter if you've gone through catechism. It doesn't matter if you try to be a good person. It doesn't matter if you're even better than the person next to you. No one comes to the Father but through Jesus Christ. That is the most significant preparation that you can ever make. Be reconciled to God. As you consider that day, and it will come for all of us, as you consider that day, take time to ask God, God, would you help me to prepare for that day? There's so many unknowns. There's so many fears. There's so many anxieties. I don't really know what to do, but Father, would you guide me? And then talk to family and friends. Talk to your doctor. Begin to prepare for that day. Even if it's 60, 80, 100 years away from now, begin to prepare for that day. St. Isaac the Syrian instructed this way. This is not in the Bible, but it's a great thing, a great advice. Prepare your heart for your departure. If you are wise, you will expect it every hour. And when the time of departure comes, go joyfully to meet it, saying, come in peace. I knew you would come, and I have not neglected anything that could help me on the journey. Father, thank you for your word today. It seems that we have listened to what you have said about Jacob and applied it in ways that I hope is helpful and thoughtful for we, your children, here today. Father, would you help us not to be afraid to have these conversations? Would you help us not to be afraid of death? We might fear the process, but we have no need to be afraid of death. And Father, if there are any here today that have not prepared spiritually, have not worked out the basis of their acceptance in heaven and what that is rooted in, Spirit of God, would you wrestle them to the ground with truth? Would they look to Christ? And would they be saved? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.